This program is a proud member of Univaz. Unified, unique, voices. Learn more at univazpods.net. Hello, my name's Patrick, and I'm a Scream Queen. I'm a Scream Queen, and so are you! <laughs> Beautiful screamers, and welcome to another episode of Scream Queens, the podcast where horror gets gay. It is day eight of the countdown to Halloween Potathon. We've been at this a full week, and there are still two more weeks to go. We are raising funds to help new alternatives help homeless LGBT teenagers in New York City get off the streets, not just for tonight, but for good. And to do that today, we're going to break the format a little bit. Yeah, we're still going to talk about Halloween, which is what I promised you, but we're going to do this a little more informally, just because, well, it's just going to be me anyway. It was always going to be me. Well, that's not true. We did have guests planned. It didn't work out because of technical problems and then scheduling. So, I mean, when I made the schedule that went out to you guys, it was going to be just me. I just did not have time to get back with these guests. And yeah, so we're going to take a more casual approach. Uh, We're just going to talk today. We're going to talk about a lot of things, and eventually we'll get to Halloween. So people have asked me why, of all the causes that are out there, why did you pick this one? Why did you pick homeless LGBT teenagers? And I said, well, if you've been to the donation page, which some of you have, there's a long introduction that explains some of it. I've always kind of lived with the lurking fear that I'm only one or two steps away from being homeless myself. I mean, being an artist always means you're living paycheck to paycheck. And also on top of that, being HIV positive, particularly in this current administration, I'm one swift draw of the administrative pen. I lose my insurance. I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm not going to be able to afford my housing anymore. I'm not going to be able to afford my medication anymore. And so the plight of the LGBT teenager who's homeless, I well, it resonates within me quite deeply. I get it. I mean, I have been on the skids, man. When I got sick, back when I tested positive in 2000 and Three, two 2004, that whole year is a blur because not only did I test positive, I was dying. I was not responding to medications. The disease was affecting my brain. They thought I had what is known as, hold on a minute, let me see if I can get all this out, progressive multifocal glucoencephalopathy, or PML. Now, back in the heyday of the AIDS crisis, people were dying of either pneumonia or PML, which meant you either died drowning in your own lung fluid or you died crazy, blind, and insane. Because this particular disease, um, the PML, is irreversible. And the damage that it does, you're gone in a few months. And that's what was happening to me. 
I was not responding to medication and the I lost control of everything a little at a time. Um, words started to not compute in my head. I started hallucinating. I would get lost in my own neighborhood and eventually I couldn't even control my own limbs. So by the time I checked into the hospital, I, was, I barely remember it. Although I do remember going to bed one night, waking up thinking it was the next day and it was months later. I woke up in this hospital thinking it was the next day and I was cold and I couldn't get anybody to answer the call bell. So I picked up the phone and called my mom at home and asked her if she could bring a blanket and she dropped the phone because I hadn't spoken in months. So there's three months of my life that are just gone. I wasn't in a coma or anything like that. Apparently I was still walking and sort of talking, but my brain was gone. I should not have come back from that. And to this day, the doctors don't know how I came back from that. They think perhaps, obviously, I was misdiagnosed because PML, if you get it, it's progressive. You don't get better. But I got better. And even as I was getting better, the doctors kept waiting for the axe to fall. They said, well, you're getting better, but it's probably only temporary. You need to be prepared. You need to make final arrangements and things like that. And I knew at that point that they were wrong. And my family, who I had to move back in with, I realized were more comfortable with me being sick than getting better. They didn't want me to go to classes where I learned how to use my body again. You know, physical therapy classes. They weren't comfortable with information coming to the house in envelopes that might say HIV or AIDS on the return envelope, on the return address. And they seemed more okay with me slowly fading away than getting better. And I knew if I stayed there, I would die. That the doctors would be right. So I left. And I slept on couches until I found a place in New Jersey, which was a horrible decision, not just because it was New Jersey, and basically fumbled around until I met Mr. Brad and eventually wound up living with him. And it was there I finally really got back on my feet and came back to myself. And during that period, when I went for help from the government, it was a nightmare. Here's someone who's already having trouble comprehending what's in front of them, trying to navigate this incredibly complicated system by themselves. And I don't know how anyone does it, to be perfectly honest. I've helped people through the process. And basically, when I say I help people through the process, I say you have to go get this person as a caseworker because that's the only way you're getting through this system. That's the only way you're getting help. So I know how easy it is to give up on the system and say, you know what, forget it. I'll just do this myself. So I understand the plight of the gay teenager who can't go home anymore. If I stayed home, I was going to die. And these kids have their own reasons why they can't stay home anymore. And of course, a family's non-acceptance of their LGBT status, for want of a better word, is the leading cause of teen homelessness among the LGBT population. So I get all of that, and that is why I embrace this project. And that is why I hope that you are going to donate and help the people at New Alternatives who do brilliant, 
brilliant work on the smaller scale, but even a small scale in the larger picture is a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's a smaller operation. Yeah, it's not the Cindy Lauper True Color Center. Yeah, it's not the California Center. They're getting huge government assistance. New Alternatives is not, but you also get more personalized service there. You're not just a number in the system. They know your name and they know your case and they know you extremely well there. And sometimes that personal touch is really what's needed in what is a truly cold, heartless world sometimes. So please visit http colon slash slash fundraise dot new alternatives nyc dot org slash sq and help them out and you know i'm asking for 21 dollars for the 21 episodes that you're getting i don't care what you give i'm just saying in your in your heart of hearts if you can give that 21 dollars that's great if it's only five then it's five dollars going towards a great cause, okay? Don't let my restrictions stop you from donating what you can. And on the other hand, don't let my $21 limit you either. If you want to give 50, give 50. By all means, many people have given much more than that. Give what you can, help these kids. I understand what they've been through and what they're going through to an extent. And I get so frustrated with the world as it is today. I just see so many horrible things happening every damn day, and things seem to be turning for the worse. And that's why I said in that episode a few times, I don't know, before the marathon started, I said, turn it outwards. You know, turn, 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 you know, stop worrying about yourself so much. Turn it out. Who can you help? Whose day can you make a little bit better? Because the problems are so fucking huge right now, I'm not sure if any of us can do anything to help anybody. But here's, here's a very concrete way that you can do very positive help that is measurable. And maybe it's not the grand problem of the day that's being rained down upon us by our administration, but it's something. And it's something good. And a little bit of good these days goes a hell of a long way because there's not a lot of it anymore. Or so it seems http colon slash slash fundraise dot new alternatives nyc dot org slash sq and please please donate let's talk about halloween in 1978 a movie was released a movie that would change the face of horror as we know it a movie that still continues to haunt us 40 years later. Its wounds are still as fresh and as raw as the day it was released. And of course, without a doubt, the movie that I'm talking about is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band starring the Bee Gees as the Beatles. No, 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 I'm just kidding. Of course, the movie I'm talking about is John Carpenter's masterpiece the trick-or-treat tale of terror in the house across the street Halloween what might be difficult for the modern audience to understand is that this movie's perfection lies in its simplicity and dare I say its mundanity this could be happening in any town on any street in any house and in 1978 that was really damn 
scary. You have to remember where we were in 1978. Son of Sam had just been apprehended. The Hillside Strangler, I think, was still on the loose. Serial killers were seen to be at an all-time high. So all of a sudden, the perfect little American town wasn't safe anymore. And this movie took that one step further. When it revealed after that opening scene that the person causing this horror was a child. Not from some awful family or not coming from abuse or neglect. The perfect American family had spawned the perfect American monster. And that was frightening. And it should still be frightening because it's still happens. The other thing that the modern audience may not realize is that the end of this movie, we have already accustomed, become accustomed that, you know, the 1978 audience, we have just adjusted to the fact that this child now grown up is raining down this barrage of terror upon Innocent babysitters on Halloween night in a town that could be yours. But it turns out, what? He's also really the boogeyman? Because before this, kids, your killers did not get up 15, 16 times after you thought they had been defeated. This was new. This was some scary shit. This was uncharted territory. Back in the day, you you got your bad guy, you shot him in the head, he went down, he stayed down, but now all of a sudden, all rules were off. You've already ruined my perfect little town, the sanctity of the all-American town, and now this, on top of it, oh, the horror. The horror. The absolute horror. Now, of course... I did not see this in the movie theaters when it came out. Yes, I saw many things way before I should have. My sister took me to see When a Stranger Calls in the theaters that same year. How that happened, I don't know. I had no interest in that movie, but yet I saw it anyhow. How these things happen, we don't know. But Halloween was not one of them, yet I was aware of it. And one of the main reasons I was aware of it was that every year it came back. Every year, the night he came home, he was coming home again. And I didn't know who he was or what he was doing at home. I had no idea what the movie was about, but I knew it must have been scary as hell. Because not only did it come back every year, that there would be lines around the block to see that movie every year. And I'm not talking about your Megaplex. I'm talking about your old-fashioned movie theater. It was like some old converted theater house, you know, that sat, you know, way too many people, more than you would ever put in a regular movie theater these days. And yet the lines would be around the block. No, no, no. I did not see it until it had its premiere on, I think, NBC in 1981. And while it kind of scared me, the effect was definitely hampered by the curse 
of commercials because the way the commercials run, they don't run them as often in the beginning of the movie as they do at the end of the movie. So when you're getting down to the climax, you're getting like two minutes of movie and then three minutes of commercials and then like 90 seconds of movie and three minutes of commercials. So it was very, very diluted for me at the time, but still, still, it was very disturbing. What I like about it, one of the things I like about it is that the, well, of course, the, the actors in it are fantastic. The three girls are perfection because they could be any kids anywhere. You know, the tropes haven't been set for this type of movie. And I love that you have um, Nancy Loomis as Annie, whose every line is just dripping in snark, yet she's not a bitch. She's a very sympathetic character. And PJ Souls just bubbly and vivacious and everything you wanted to be at 17. I wanted to be PJ Souls when I was in high school, that's for sure. I tried. I tried. I said totally all the time. I wrote riff on my copy of Rocket to Ruin, just like she did in Rock and Roll High School, but I wasn't PJ Souls, but I wanted to be her. And I've heard people complain about the dialogue between the three girls about how nonsensy and boring and about nothing it is, but that's exactly what three high school girls would be talking about on any given day in 1978. Mundanity. And that's what makes this movie work. It's simplicity done to perfection. But the thing that really makes the movie stand out for me is something that came to my attention much later on and unfortunately ruined pretty much everything else in the excuse me, rest of the series. I'm having cocktails now because it's time for Daddy to relax. Now, those of you who've been listening for a long time have heard me say this many, many a time that when in part two they introduced the gag of, oh no, she's really his sister, that that ruined the franchise for me. And... It did on several levels. The main, most obvious one is that it suddenly made Michael Myers 100% inefficient. That means movie after movie after movie, he's coming back to kill a relative. Okay, either it's Jamie Lee Curtis or it's Daniel Harris or it's Josh Hartnett. Yet he never, ever gets them. He gets everybody else in town. He'll kill everybody he comes into contact with, but never, ever, ever the target. Blah! That's sloppy work, Mr. Myers. If this was a corporation, he would be fired. But my reason for disliking it is something else. Now, if you've also been listening for a long time, you will know that everyone in my family who was not a CPA is involved with some kind of law enforcement. They might be a cop, they might be a police detective, all the way up to the FBI, to the Secret Service, and things like that. When it became very clear that Patrick could not do math, the law enforcement side of the family said, you know what, he's really good at this. And my cousin from the FBI and the Secret Service started to notice that I had a talent for profiling. And that's something that you can't teach. Profiling is when you can take a look at a crime scene and figure out something about the psychology of the person who did this crime. It's an innate thing. You can either do it or you can't. 
I'm pretty good at it. I pursued that for a very short time. I took criminal psychology classes and specialized classes that would one day lead me toward a career as a profiler, possibly for the FBI. I eventually realized I couldn't do it because all of a sudden it wasn't movies I was looking at. It wasn't abstract puzzles I was looking at. It was actual victims in actual crimes. And those people started to haunt me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I said, this can't be my life every single day. I do not have the constitution for this. It's kind of a fun parlor game pastime for me now, but no, as a career, no. I'd much rather do something positive and creative like acting or podcasting. This keeps me happy. That would have put me in the loony bin. However, that innate talent that I have and the things that I learned in class still pop up every now and then. And one of the things that I always will wind up doing when I'm watching a horror movie, I'll start to psychoanalyze things. Not based on the killer themselves, but based on their actions and the crime scenes themselves. And that led me to this controversial opinion about the original Halloween, and it only works for the original. And I'll get into the details in a minute, and I've gotten into fights over this, And it's why I don't talk about this movie. It is that, in my opinion, Jamie Lee Curtis was never an intended victim. Ever. No, no, no. There is one targeted victim in the modern day era of Halloween, in the movie Halloween. And it is not Jamie Lee Curtis. And how you arrive at a conclusion like this is you have to look at every little tiny bit of information that you're given and say, what makes this different? What's different about this crime scene from the last crime scene? What's the same about it? And when you look at it, what you get, you know, if you take the script away and if you know that if you take away, if you don't know that he's the boogeyman, you're just looking at it from a purely psychological point of view. Michael Myers only has one victim, and is in the case with many mass murderers and serial killers, they will kill the same victim over and over and over and over and over again. Like, um, for instance, oh, Texas Chainsaw guy Ed Gein was killing his mother over and over and over again in different forms. Not literally, but for some reason, people who triggered the mother button in his brain. Michael Myers is killing Judith again in 1978. Now, I don't know why he killed Judith. It's not clear. It might have been that he was just sneaking in to scare her that night, give her a Halloween scare. But then all of a sudden she was there with no top on and he was caught watching for too long and she yelled at him and freaked out, stabbed her, whatever. Not clear. But now over time, the Judith has become fetishized, for want of another word. 
So then when he breaks out of the hospital, the only person that he, you know, initially kills is that mechanic. And that is purely logistic. He kills that man in order to get clothes that are not from the asylum. He has to be able to blend in. And he breaks into his old house and he hides out there overnight. So Dr. Loomis says, that makes sense. The little boy went home. And then spends the day touring his old town. He runs into several people. He does not kill them. He runs into little Tommy. Doesn't kill him. Presumably, he's bumped into other people during the day walking around in that mask. He doesn't kill everyone that he sees. That is not the game. And that's one of those things you say, okay, well, this is supposed to be, you know, this crazy Jason-like mass murderer. Why isn't he killing everyone he sees? Oh, because he doesn't have that in mind yet. He follows some pretty girls. And it's not until... Annie yells out, hey, jerk, speed kills, that something drastically changes. He slams the brakes on that car and stares at them. For whatever reason, in my opinion, at that moment, Annie Loomis became his Judith Myers. Because it's not necessarily Lori he's following Later on, it's Annie's car that he's following. He's standing outside the house that Annie babysits all night looking in. He's not looking into the house where Jamie Lee Curtis is babysitting. No, he's always watching the other house. And when he finally kills Annie, it is Annie's body that is put on display. Not just on display, an altar. He's, she's given Judith Myers' tombstone. That is the kill that he wanted to make. That is the kill he's proud of. That's why she's out there for all the world to see. Look what I did. Look what I did. Mikey did a good thing. Mikey punished bad Judith again. And it's just the misfortune of everybody else that they just keep showing up at the house. Linda and her dopey boyfriend. Lori. They just keep showing up. And at that point, now Michael's caught. Michael's done a bad thing. And in criminal psychology, when you have a killer that puts a body on display, that is an indication that this is something that they are proud of. When it is something that is hidden, it is something they are ashamed of for whatever reason. Only Annie is on display. All the other bodies are hidden. He does not feel good about them. And in this movie, he does something he does not do in any other movie. What is that? When he comes to Linda, while Linda is lying topless in bed, do you see anything you like? Michael puts on a disguise. He's already wearing a mask. But no, he puts on the outfit, pretends to be her boyfriend. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? And he stands there, and he watches, 
and he watches, and it's not until she rejects him and says, this is going nowhere, that he has to clean up his mess. Was it sexual? Did he think he was going to score with Linda? I mean, in some kind of, and I'm using this in a clinical sense, in some kind of retarded sexual mentality? That when she rejects him, it is then that he has to clean up his mess? And you will notice he does not stab Linda. He strangles Linda. And in clinical psychology, when someone is strangled, it is almost always the case that that murder was not planned. That murder was impromptu because it is incredibly difficult to strangle someone even with a telephone cord. He did not walk into that room planning to kill Linda. What did he want? I'm not sure. But it wasn't murder. And of course, then Lori shows up and she's got to be taken care of too. Michael did bad things. Michael's going to be punished. And the fact that Michael is also the boogeyman makes Michael terrifying. Terrifying. None of this stuff takes away from Halloween at all for me. It makes it better. I live for when I see a movie that gets its clinical criminal psychology correct. And this movie nails it. Whether it's intentional or not, all of the pieces fit together beautifully. I do this all the time, by the way. I can't help myself. Like even in the original Friday the 13th, I look at Mrs. Voorhees and I say, why this time? Camp Crystal Lake has tried to open before and there were fires and there was contaminated water. Why are you killing everyone now? Okay, I get it. In 1958, you took care of the two. That was slacking off and caused your son to drown. Those two I get, but why? After all these years, this time, are you killing everybody? And I realized recently, I said, it's because of Annie. She picked up Annie the Hitchhiker, who is basically a young Mrs. Voorhees. It's the same job with probably all the same optimism that Mrs. Voorhees was trying to do. Well, you know, all the optimism that Mrs. Voorhees was carrying when she had that job when she was a young woman. And looking face to face and herself caused her to snap. And once she killed one, she had to kill them all. She had to kill them all. I love Halloween. I think it is perfection in movie form. And like even the score, the starkness and simplicity of the score is perfection. You cannot get better than this movie for me. And the fact that it works at a criminal psychology level makes it even better. Did I ruin the movie for you? I'm sorry. Do you want to beat me up now? Okay, come at me. I don't mind. I, would, I could talk about this forever. There are so many instances throughout the movie that everything fits perfectly with this one particular psychological profile. Which, of course, all gets thrown out the window when you realize that he's the boogeyman, too, on top of it all at the end. So, I think that's it. But, of course, really, honestly, the scariest scene for me is when... She, 
Jamie Lee Curtis runs out of the house and bangs on the neighbor's door and they turn on the lights and they turn them off that they just don't care. Because that is something that really frightens me. When people see you suffering and they just don't care. And that is how we're coming back to new alternatives. Because I know you care. I hope you care. And if you care, show me that you care. Go on over to http colon slash slash fundraise dot dot org slash sq and give a donation and help the kids and new alternatives. Please. That is all I'm asking for you from you this Halloween. So I hope you've enjoyed our informal chat. Tomorrow, I'm going to have uh, some brand new podcasters on the show. They've only just started and they impressed the living hell out of me. And that is the Film Flamers. And they're going to be here talking about the final girls, which is kind of the flip side of the same coin that we covered in Behind the Mask. And I think it's kind of important to take a look at them together. It's kind of get a nice rounded view of the slasher movie. So, yes. I've enjoyed this informal chat. I have been getting all these things recorded ahead of time was smart. Except now you've got these perfectly little packaged segments pre-produced and you don't get the wear and tear that putting this all together is taking out of me. I'm I am very tired and my brain needed a break and I just put out episode 7 this afternoon and I have to record this tonight. Because Miss Moochie's had a bad day. She had a very bad seizure. So I'm going to have to take her to the vet tomorrow. And also, I need to return my car back to my parents for the weekend. So I would not have a chance to do it otherwise. And so maybe it's not as flashy as the other episodes in the Potathon, But it's coming from the heart. And you can't ask more from me than that. That's what I try to do all the time. And this time, it's just you, just me. No bells, no whistles. Just hanging out, having a brew. Watching Miss Smoochie sleep. But it's time to wrap this thing up. So, please, one more time. You know where to go. HTTP colon slash slash fundraise dot new alternatives nyc.org slash sq please please i beg of you donate something do a little bit of good in this world don't be the person that turns the light out on jamie lee curtis screaming for help don't be that person and of course get me all your halloween stories for the first episode in november otherwise there won't be one I want to know what's going on with you this Halloween. Tell me everything. Tell me anything. Make something up. Tell me a good ghost story. I don't care. Make my Halloween because I'm not having one. No, this is my Halloween. 
This whole project is my Halloween. I love every second of it, but when the night comes, I'm going to be done, da done, done, done. And you can get that information in by calling 917-720-2047. You can write me at crew at screamqueens.com. Find me on Facebook by doing a search on Scream Queens where horror gets gay. I'm on Twitter at Scream Queens. And get me your photos of your Halloween costumes or your cool decorated house or whatever or your pets i don't care because i want to put them on instagram and of course the instagram is scream queens podcast so i will be back tomorrow for day eight or day nine i don't know whatever day it is it's whatever day it is but i'll be here with the film flamers we'll be talking about the final girls and we're gonna have a party we're gonna be all flashy again and it's gonna be tons and tons of fun so until next time my beautiful beautiful screamers continue to make the world a creepier place but possibly make this halloween a little less creepy for the kids at new alternatives by making a donation and never ever ever forget the scream queen's golden rule fight or flight Survive the night. Make it to the final reel, baby. Woo! Because there's like pie and margaritas over here. What? It's true. All of the music for tonight's show, unless otherwise specified, has been written by Sam Haynes. You can find all of his music at www. Dot bandcamp.com Bitches! <laughs>